0: morning, everybody. How are you today? Hey, thanks for letting us start uh, five minutes later. Um, you may have seen or heard uh, there was an accident out in front of the church. Uh, and so if you don't mind, I just want to pray for the folks involved before we even get started because it's on my mind. So uh, let's pray. Uh, dear Lord God, uh, we thank you for an opportunity that we have to worship you uh, together as a church family, uh, but right now we uh, come to you and we lift up uh, the, the folks that were involved in the accident out front of our church building. Uh, I pray, God, that you will uh, uh, be with them, bring healing uh, physically where needed, emotionally, mentally where needed, uh, as um, that's just a scary and traumatizing situation uh, for all involved. And so... Uh, I just pray, God, that you will uh, uh, bring comfort and and, uh, and all the things that only you can bring uh, to the people involved there uh, and, and, uh, in a way that uh, will uh, lift them up. We thank you for caring for our concerns, and it's in your Son, Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, we are in our series on the Sermon on the Mount, and... Uh, I think I admitted to you that I've kind of bounced around a little bit. I don't think I regret bouncing around but uh, but I'm really going to make things messy today because the the first sermon uh from this uh from this section of jesus teaching uh is a text that's smack dab in the middle of the two passages we're going to look at today, and I hope to kind of bring things together because some of the things that we've discovered so far from Jesus is that Jesus raises the bar for those of us that uh, are, are called to be disciples of him. Uh, but he also, uh, in, in coming into the world and ushering in the kingdom, is ushering in a reversal of not only fortune, but of the, the, the way that we once were before we come to know Jesus and, and reversing things and giving us a way forward uh, to be and to live as God's children. And so some of that is going to come to a head in the passages that we're going to look at today. We're going to, we're going to look at a teaching, Jesus says, uh, to his earliest hearers where he calls them salt and light. And then we're going to take an example from one of the six passages where Jesus kind of intensifies what would be known as an Old Testament command and ratchets up uh, just how vital and how deep uh, such a command ought to run in our lives as an illustration. But in order to get there, I always like to open up with some sort of illustrative uh, light, uh, text and, and uh, story. And so I want to start off by reading the first few verses of the Gospel of John to you, and then I want to tell you a story. Where this kind of became super significant for me. John opens his gospel uh, and says In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people, and the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not overtake it. When I was in college, uh, I think I told you a story a, a few weeks back about how I like really badly failed Greek in college, and I told you I had to s- kind of switch my degree around in order to make up for that. Well, because of that, I ended up taking geology at Cincinnati Christian University. Well, since I Bible college and seminary, it was called when I first started. Anyway, uh, so. Uh, as part of the geology class, there was always a geology field trip involved. And it was one of those things where when you took that class, you knew it was coming at some point. And the field trip uh, took us, uh, me and my fellow students, to uh, camp out. And we went and visited Mammoth Cave and Cumberland Falls. And if, if you know my story at all, I, Angie and I started dating at 17 so when I was in college, we went to two different colleges, by the way. She went to Northern Kentucky University, and I went to Cincinnati Christian University. So we could easily become like passing ships. So when it was the weekend or off time, do you want to know what I wanted to spend my time doing? I want to hang out with my girl, you know? I don't want to go on a geology field trip. <laughs> so I was kind of like not super excited about doing this forced fun sort of situation that we had to do, but it ended up being very formative for me because uh, I was actually a commuter uh, at CCU, and so this gave me an opportunity to get to know fellow students better. We had, you know, all the high emotional things, you know, we had worship music under the stars around campfire, uh, all that different stuff. And a lot of just enjoying God's creation and taking it in and contemplating faith and contemplating our call and our mission and all these things. But there was a very pivotal moment in that field trip uh, where we we went uh, on, a, on a tour through Mammoth Cave and it was lit up, you got down and you saw the stalagmites and stalactites and please don't quiz me on which one goes up and which one points down, but I know the names. Um, and so we're, we're going through there and, and they get us to this kind of flat um, uh, raked floor sort of thing. It kind of elevates up and they have us all go and they have us sit there. And we read the passage that I just read. And then the lighting that was lighting the cave shuts off. And I don't know if you've ever been in a cave in pitch black darkness. But if you put your hand in front of your face like this, you can't see it. And then... Uh, one of our, our field trip guides takes a match and lights it. And this one small match just lights up the entire space that we're in. And suddenly we could see. And so when you read this passage that, that Jesus, in him was life, he's the word, but not only in, in him is life, but his life gives light. And the darkness cannot overcome the light. It's not only significant in ways that we're going to discuss light and salt in not only the ancient world, but in, in, the, in the Scripture and its significance for us. But just as an exercise of being in a pitch black, dark cave and having the lights go out and seeing how one small little flame can provide enough light for you to have all the visibility that you need just brought that passage and that teaching about Jesus and his identity to, no pun intended, light for us. And it really made me think about all the examples of light in uh, Scripture. The idea that in the book of Isaiah, the the people of God are told to walk in the light of the Lord— The idea that we are told to be in the light in the letters of John. And then there's the passage that we're going to look at today where Jesus, who is the light of the world according to John, uses that same word to describe his earliest disciples. And it's not only a profound statement for Jesus to make as we're going to see, about his disciples, about his fellow Jewish people that are the people listening to him because all of his earliest followers were Jewish. And so there's significance there because they are the people of God told to walk in the light of the Lord, and now they are being told they are the light of the world. But it also is another signifier of the high bar that not only Jesus calls his hearers to, But it ratchets up that high bar to a whole other level. When we not only read what he says about his hearers, but how he defines ongoing that high bar from that point. And one last thing about that example. To see how impactful one small flame is in a dark cave makes you realize, if you didn't already, that when Jesus is called the light of the world and Jesus tells his hearers to follow his example and his teaching, we are being told to be like Jesus. And so if Jesus is the kind of light that scatters the darkness, his disciples, both then and now, are also called to be darkness scatterers by living in obedience to the will of God. And so with that backdrop, I want us to take a look today at two passages. We're going to read one and we'll sit and unpack it for a moment and then we'll bring the other one in as uh, as a bit of an example to this high bar that Jesus is keeping in place here and believe it or not, we're going to conclude with another story of Jesus to emphasize that point at the end. It's going to be a very scripture You know, the whole job, my whole job is pretty simple. I'm supposed to come up here and teach the Bible. So I read a lot of it sometimes. So hopefully you join me here. So we're going to look at Matthew 5:13 through 16 first, and it'll be on screens and you can follow along here. Jesus says to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but it's thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. People, no one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So Jesus uses two analogies uh, and and both of them are packed with meaning. uh, Beyond things that we might take for granted. He starts out with salt. If we think about salt today, you might think of variable uses. Maybe if you're a deer hunting person, you put a salt block out there in the woods. And we come out there, you know, do all that sort of thing. Sorry, my dad was just showing me video footage of where his, like, tree stands and everything capturing deer. So it's on my brain right now. But, but if you're not into that sort of thing, maybe you just are used to sitting at the dinner table and you've got a meal in front of you and get the salt shaker out and you pour salt on it and it flavors it up or if you're my kid you never stop dumping the salt and then once it's covered your food and you can't even see whatever it was that he was eating he licks the salt off it's very very weird I found out from my mom that she does that or did that as a kid she doesn't do it now sorry mom if you're anyway uh but in in the world that Jesus is teaching in, salt not only served the taste profile purpose, but it went beyond that. In that world, they didn't have deep freezers or fridge and freezer combos. Salt was used to preserve food. It was used for taste. It was used uh, sometimes to... Uh, to purify things. Salt was a, uh, a, one of the grains talked about in the grain offerings in Leviticus. So it could be used as an offering to God, as an act of worship. It had many different uh, uses in this world, some that we still think about today and some that we don't consider or that we take for granted that it would have been needed in that measure. Now, the the funny thing about the property of salt, and this has been something that uh, Bible geeks have debated about, is that it really doesn't lose its saltiness. And so you're sitting here thinking, well, what are you talking about, Jesus? How does it lose its taste or its functionality? But the chemical properties of it can be diminished in particular situations. Sometimes salt blocks were used in the process of cooking, and over uh, being overheated for too long could cause it to diminish in its property. Uh, and it's interesting that that would have been a use of the salt, because Jesus, when he teaches these commands, by the way, as I always like to point out, he's not looking at individuals and saying "you" and "you" and "you." He says, "Y'all are the salt of the earth. Y'all are the light of the world." And so. The idea that a collective salt block could get diminished, well, if it's not working to uh, do what it's meant to do in the fire of cooking, it would be tossed out and replaced with that which would work. So that's just one verse. And then Jesus turns around and he says, You're the light of the world. You're the light of the world. No one puts a a light up and covers it up to diminish its light. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. The whole idea is that light is meant to make the darkness scatter. But you know, when I was in that cave and I saw that match go off, something else hit me in that moment. You see, I don't know if you know this, but we're in a room, we've got electricity. We can flip a light switch on, turn a, a light board on, and we can even change the colors of the lights here. We take for granted that we have lights. take for granted that it was invented at one point, electricity and the light bulb and all these different things. But in the time of Jesus, none of that existed. The darkness was a very, very scary and bad place or setting to be in. Bad things happened in the dark. Bad things happen in the night, in the darkness. Not only could you trip over yourself if you can't see where you're going, but people with bad intentions and nefarious plans might do things in the cover of darkness. Especially, by the way, if you're a people group who we established are living life under the thumb of the Roman oppressors and are dealing with persecution as a people and oppression as a people on a regular basis. You don't want to be caught out in the dark. You need light to guide your path. And so to hear this idea that you are the light of the world carries significance on a very earthly level. But then factor into that That God is the creator and giver of light. That the people that Jesus is teaching to are called to walk in God's light. The idea, by the way, that in the Roman occupied world, do you know what the Emperor Caesar was called? The light of the world. Did you know that if you were a Roman citizen you had a special privilege that people that weren't Roman citizens had? And so not only is Jesus hearkening back to this teaching that existed in the Old Testament about God and light, but he's also making a pretty provocative statement to people that are under the thumb of Rome and saying, No, 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 no. The the Emperor Caesar is not the light of the world. You are. but inherent in these lofty descriptors that Jesus gives. It is a badge of honor to be called salt and light. It is also a challenge. Because if salt loses its saltiness, its ability to preserve, its ability to taste, its ability to do what it's meant to do, it's no good. And what good is light if you cover it up? If a light is on, if a torch is lit, and you cover it up and you extinguish the flame, you're just in darkness again. And so Jesus pulls his hearers in, and he tells them uh, these beatitudes, these reversals of fortune. Blessed are the poor, and so on. And then immediately after that, after he lands on the idea that blessed are you when people hate and revile and persecute you, especially because of me, then he turns and says, you are the light of the world and you are the salt of the earth. And please don't lose your goodness because you're going to get tossed out if you do. The implication here being that not only are your circumstances bad and with the ushering in of the kingdom of God Those will be reversed. But I need to remind you that you are salt and light because you have lost your saltiness and your light has been diminished. And you have become no good to a world that is tasteless and void of light. And this world needs your saltiness. That's a funny way to say it because, you know, people be salty and everything. And it needs your light. It needs that kind of saltiness too. And so Jesus not only gives them a badge of honor, but he raises the bar. And he says, you need to live up to what you are. You need to not have your saltiness diminished. And you need not have your light snuffed out. And that's when Jesus then turns and, he, and he, he, he gives that teaching that we did in week one where he says, by the way, don't think I've come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. And he says, your righteousness needs to exceed that of the most esteemed religious leaders around. You remember that? Those were the verses that followed 17 and, and following. And so Jesus says that right after giving them this badge of honor. So he's really driving the point home. I'm not just saying nice things about you. I want you to live up to what I have just said about you. And so after Jesus raises the bar, he goes on and he does these teachings. Some people that study the Bible for a living have looked at these and they've they've called these statements antithetical, but they're not. They're not, They're not really like Jesus has said one thing and then he says something different or reverses it. They're better viewed as intensified versions of the laws. Because remember, Jesus just said, I'm not coming to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. I'm not here to reverse it or to say that what God said before no longer stands, In fact, Jesus says, I've come to fulfill it. And he also says, you're the light and salt of the world, and you need to live up to that. So now I'm going to talk to you, and I'm going to get to the heart of the matter, not just the outward expression. And so we're going to look at one of those examples now. Because it's one on one level that, like, unless you have committed a murder that you haven't told anybody about, Uh, and you're in this room, you might look at this and say, well, that's good. I I don't do that thing. But it's what Jesus says when he gets to the heart of the command that becomes very convicting. And it also shows Jesus in this moment uh, not only convicting us by getting to the heart of the matter, but he challenges those of us that might think that we're going to cover up our heart with a little bit of religiosity. And so I want us to look here at Jesus' teaching uh, where he brings up the command that you shall not murder and digs into the heart. It starts at verse 21 here. And he says, you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder. And whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you're angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar... If you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, then leave your gift there before the altar and go first to be reconciled to your brother and sister, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are, uh, I just lost my place here, on the way to court with him. And your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you will be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now Jesus starts off with one of the 10 commandments here. He says, you have heard it said of old or in ancient times, you shall not murder. And then he tacks on uh, this bit about uh, whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. And this is an echo, if you know the rest of the Mosaic law, to Leviticus and, and Numbers and, and so on, uh, because there are uh, penalties described there for having committed the crime of murder. But Jesus then says, But I say to you that if you are angry with your brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't normally go around telling people you fool. It's just not an insult I like to use. I come up with better ones. I'm just kidding. (laughs) But joking aside, hopefully you caught how serious Jesus is about what's going on behind the curtain, behind the eyes, in the heart, in the mind, in our language. Uh, Some have said that this is Jesus' way of somewhat putting a fence around the rule. It's one thing to say, don't murder. It's another thing for Jesus to say, uh, I'm going to ratchet it up here a bit. I don't want you to even do or think the things that might lead you to murder. Because if you do those things, while you might be uh, saved from the, uh, the, uh, the judge and the, the ways about going about and prosecuting the crimes, there's a greater judge who knows your every thought your every intention your every word and you don't escape from him and I don't know about you but I've been angry before I have I've literally probably said things to my own brother and by the way they're not just, he's not just talking about uh, siblings, but the rest of the people that he's teaching to. And as Jesus goes on, as he teaches these things, he actually goes in his teaching beyond just the fellow Israelites that he's teaching to, but teaches his hearers to even do good to enemies— Jesus spares nothing and no one. And so he goes on in this teaching and he ratchets up this rule, you shall not murder, and he gets to the heart of the matter. And then he turns to acts of worship and he says that when you're offering your gift at the altar, by the way, it doesn't say if you're offering your gift. And it says, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there at the altar and go first. He doesn't say, don't give your gift. He says, go do something else before you give that gift. And so the deal here is, is that Jesus is, is teaching uh, his people that what, what you do in your heart and what you do in your interpersonal lives and what you do in the day-to-day That God sees at all times is so vitally important that while giving your gift at the altar is an important thing, God wants your heart to be corrected before you come and give your gift. Don't neglect the gift, but deal with the heart before you do the act of piety in your acts of worship that are seen by others. See, for Jesus, uh, many of us can raise our hand and say, well, I've never killed anybody. But he gets to the heart of the matter, and then he also deals with the fact that some of us may come and say, well, yeah, uh, you know, this last week I uh, said things I shouldn't have said to the clerk at the counter, and I was really, really mad at my spouse for this thing, and we didn't talk for a whole day. And... um, And then I acted like a grouch at work. But then when I got to church, I did my offering. And I made sure some people around me saw it. So they all think I'm a good, God-fearing Christian person. Even though what I do Monday through Saturday doesn't quite align. See, it's really, really great if Jesus comes and he says, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Until you realize that when Jesus defines what it means to be salt and light, and what it means for salt to lose its saltiness and light to be snuffed out, that it doesn't just mean doing the outward things that give off the appearance of being a good upstanding person but that at all times and whenever possible even when no one else is looking even when no one else can read your mind that you try to honor God with your thoughts with your words and with your actions and on that level all of us hear the teaching of Jesus and Jesus has not abolished the law He's not just fulfilled it because he is the perfect, sinless, spotless lamb. But he has intensified what it means to live it out. It's always an honor to be called something good until you realize you've got to put the work in to actually live up to what you're called. And for Jesus, as he's teaching his hearers, he intensifies that call and says this is the way that it looks to live out your status as children of God. Jesus starts this sermon by telling his hearers that are living a hard life, they can't make ends meet, that are trampled on by the world around them, that because the kingdom has come, they, in fact, are the blessed ones and not the meek and mild and trampled on that they've been led to believe. He reverses fortune. But he goes on in the rest of the sermon to say, here's the high bar that God has for you, and I'm calling you to live it out. And you have not up to this point, and you can't do it on your own. So I'm also gonna reverse fortune there, because I'm gonna show you a better way, and I'm gonna do something to get you there. Jesus didn't just Pull his disciples into a class and teach them the scriptures, he dined with them, he walked with them, he took them wherever he went, and he let them see how he lived and how he loved others, and how he lived up to the commands of God to perfection. And so, as I said before in a previous week, when he gets to that great commission at the end of Matthew and tells his disciples to make disciples, he is saying, go make people that do what I do. And That's a very, very daunting calling. And that's the key there. Jesus raises the bar for a way of life that most of us, when we read this passage and the passages that come after it, Read it with trepidation because most of us have not lived up to what Jesus has called us to be and to do. I know I haven't. And so we sit and we think, well, what's the way forward here? Well, when Jesus is betrayed and arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. The way Matthew tells the story and the detail that he gives is really, really important. Because Jesus not only talks the talk, but he walks the walk. You know, if, if you've ever been like, wrongly accused of something or you know, like, even your, your sibling tattles on you for something that you didn't do, And you want to go let them have it later? Your inclination is to not bite your tongue and still value your sibling in the moment. It's probably to figure out a way to get them in trouble, too. Well, Jesus, when he is about to be arrested, he deals with his arrest. And the accusations against him and the treatment done to him differently than most of us would and do. So I just want you to hear what it says on the night that he was betrayed. It's in Matthew twenty six forty seven through 56. It says, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived with him. Uh, uh, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. There's a semicolon there. With him was a large crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Arrest him. At once he came to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you're here to do. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and arrested him. Suddenly one of those with Jesus put his hand on his sword, drew it, and struck the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, "'Put your sword back into its place, "'for all who take the sword will die by the sword. "'Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, "'and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels?' But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled, which say it must happen this way? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as though I were a rebel? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and he did not arrest me. But all this has taken place so that the scriptures of the prophets may be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him. And fled. They didn't follow him. Even that's what he called him in the verse. They deserted and fled. Did you notice that Jesus calls Judas friend? You know why? Because elsewhere Jesus calls his disciples friends. He says, "You're not servants. You're my friends." And Judas was on the inner circle of disciples. And he became the betrayer. And even though Jesus knew what he was there to do, to hand him over for a bag of money, he still has the audacity to say, friend, do what you came here to do. He doesn't give him a backhand and say, get out of here. He says, friend, do what you've had to do. And then the other disciples come, and they they see that, that the arresters have laid their hands on Jesus. They're getting physical, and they're getting ready to arrest him. And it says in Matthew, it doesn't identify, although elsewhere it's identified that it's Peter, Jesus' closest, one of the inner three disciples, that takes out a sword and cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest. And Peter is reprimanded. He says, put your sword away, In fact, those who live by the sword will die by it. And then Jesus turns, and it isn't say, hey, you got the wrong guy. He says, hey, look, you've come here as if I'm leading a rebellion here, and clearly I'm not ready to do anything to harm you. I'm yelling at my own guys here for trying to harm you. But I'm willingly giving myself so that the will of God can be fulfilled. Jesus' disciples all thought him to be the Messiah. They were ready to follow him. They heard his teaching, that those who were under the thumb of their oppressors were blessed, that the kingdom had arrived, that the Messiah was here and was going to lead them to freedom. And when the hour was at hand, in the cover of darkness, when they came with their torches and clubs to find Jesus and do what they were doing in the cover of darkness, Jesus willingly complies with the arrest because he came for the greater good of not only his disciples, but his arresters. And that wasn't the kind of Messiah that his disciples wanted. So they saw what Jesus did, and they heard what he had to say, And they got out of Dodge. And all of a sudden, he was alone. And he gave up his life so that we could have life to the full. So that Peter could have life to the full. So that the guy that lost an ear could have life to the full so that the high priests and the people that ordered his arrest could have life to the full. So that you and I, who, even if we haven't committed murder, may have been angry with a brother or sister, or have called somebody a bad name, or have treated someone like they were trash rather than the treasure and children of God, so that we could have life to the full. So that we could be salt and light. And so that we could have a way to live up to the high bar that Jesus calls us to. So that when our moments, small, big, hidden, and in public, come where we can live it out. We have the way and the power to choose the way of Jesus rather than the way that we're accustomed to doing. You all are salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. We are called to be salt and light. Just as Jesus taught us to be, and showed us to be and made a way for us to be. Each week when we take communion, which is what we're going to do right now, we are reminded of the way that Jesus made for us to be salt and light, even when we have failed to be salt and light and have chosen the path of disobedience to God and sin. And it was on that night that Jesus was betrayed, where his disciples abandoned him in the cover of darkness, that he gave those disciples before that hour the bread and the cup, telling them to do this in remembrance of him because His body was given for them and his blood was poured out for them. Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice for those of us that believe so that we can live as salt and light. So I want us to take a moment to pause and contemplate that. And after that moment of pause, we will take communion together as one church body. I invite each of you to take this bread and eat. This is his body which is given for us. I invite you to take and drink from this cup. This is his blood which is poured out for us. Please pray with me. Dear Lord God, I thank you for the the high calling that it is to be your children to be called salt and light we also recognize how daunting it is to live up to that measure and how much we can't do it on our own how much we faulted and failed how many times that we wake up in the morning and we say today is the day that I'm going to do it all the way that God wants me to do and then one in the afternoon comes and we trip up and we lose sight and we fall off the path and we need you again to pick us up and yet God you don't leave us to our own devices to our own strength to our own willpower to measure up but your son in his perfection measured up and made a way And God, we thank you for not only an opportunity to hear your word and his teaching to his first disciples that is still for us today as those who choose to follow him, but that as we take communion, we remember that you have made a way for us and that by the power of your spirit, you embolden us with strength beyond ourselves to try to do better to try to be salt and to try to be light. I pray, God, that you will help us uh, to, to keep the bar high and to rely on you to reach it in every opportunity that we have. We pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.